Welcome, everybody. This is Peter Ravella, and this is the American Shoreline Podcast. We are thrilled today to have Robert Evan Jones on the show, and we're here to introduce you to Robert, and we're here to introduce you to his new podcast on ASPN, The Catch Curve. Catch Curve, Peter, promises to be a fascinating show about the world of coastal fisheries, how they're managed, the policy that goes into them, the people that use them, commercial fishermen, recreational fishermen. Robert, we are thrilled to have you on the network and thrilled to have you on today's podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to producing uh, some interesting episodes for your listeners. Well, I can't imagine having a, a, a podcast network about the American shoreline and leaving out the universe of fisheries policy and the economics and the people of this community. It's been one of the driving forces on the American shoreline, I think, going back to the very beginning. Certainly in, in the U.S., uh, you go back as far as Jamestown. That's right. Uh, settlements that were chosen uh, because of the abundance of the natural resource that was in the water there. Wow. Yeah, you know, I was uh, just the other day, I was I was watching a BBC documentary about these ancient shell mounds that they have found oh, yeah. uh, up in Scotland, 20 feet high. And, you know, the the analysis is that, you know, early humans came to the coast because it was the grocery store. There were fish, there were tide pools, there were limpets, there were all sorts of animals to eat. And uh, to this day, now we, of course, we have to manage our fisheries, complex policies, but we still are, are gravitating the coast for food and for recreation, uh, oftentimes fishing. So this, this we could not possibly overlook this section. Gotta have it. And before we dive into that and talk more about the Catch Curve podcast and, and meet Robert Jones, uh, let's do a little business, Tyler. Thank our sponsor today. Absolutely. Well, uh, by this point, our listeners are, are hopefully familiar with the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. This is the premier coastal advocacy organization in the United States. And the fall conference, Peter, is coming up, and it promises to be a good one. It will be in Galveston, Texas, October 30th to November 2nd. Uh, 200 speakers, three days of in-depth dive into beaches and shorelines in America. Come to the conference. Register today at asbpa.org. We're going to be there, Tyler. We will. We're going to have a booth there. We will be podcasting there. We're going to uh, be interviewing the keynote speakers, Derek Brockbank, the executive director, uh, and you, uh, the conference goers and our listeners. We would love to have you on our final show where we will be uh, interviewing people and asking them what they learned at the conference and what their takeaways are. We cannot wait. Looking forward to being in Galveston October 30th, folks. Come on down. Uh, and I want to thank our, 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 our other official sponsor as of today out of Pensacola, Florida, Dune Doctors, which is one of the premier dune restoration companies uh, in America. If you're on the beach in Florida or on the Gulf Coast and your dune system is has been damaged and you want to restore it with native dune plant vegetation, uh, Dune Doctors, Pensacola, Florida, dunedoctors.com. Give them a call. Great people. And we want to thank Dune Doctors for officially joining the uh, show today. Absolutely. Great company. Well, let's talk about the catch curve, Robert. And um, I think it's going to be, as I said, instrumental. It's, it's key. It's foundational to the network. I think we have to have it. And I love the name of the show. Can you tell us what is a catch curve and what does that mean? 
Sure. Well, it's a kind of a wonky science term that I thought would be fun as the name of the show. Uh, what it actually means, it's a breakdown of different age groups of fish and age classes of fish in a stock uh, that are measured in order to determine the total mortality of a stock. In other words, what's the health of that fish stock? Hmm. And it's kind of a wonky term, but I thought it would be fun to use as the name for the podcast because it speaks to part of the technical aspect of what we're going to dive in in the episodes and looking at uh, how the health of a fishery uh, is instrumental to the coastal community that depends on it, uh, ways to understand how it's measured, federal laws and state laws that govern it, um, and uh, and then also get into some fun topics as well, uh, talking about actually catching those tasty fish. Then <laughs> what... You know, this is why I love this show, because uh, Robert is not only a policy expert on, on fisheries around the United States, but he uh, is also an avid fisherman. And I think uh, that's going to be an interesting take and uh, very appropriate, too. And um, so I, I'm looking forward to learning about where the best places are to fish on the American shoreline, Robert, from you. Absolutely. Uh, you, you know, I uh, grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, grew up on the coast, uh, had my first boat at age 14, uh, was out in an aluminum John boat way far further offshore than my parents ever knew about and uh, way further than was ever safe <laughs> uh, trying to catch my own fish. Uh, I love it. I love hunting and fishing. Uh, it's been a critical part of my life and so it was sort of a natural evolution for me then to get into federal fisheries management policy for a living. Uh, it's a job that I love, uh, and I'm happy to uh, bring in some of the people that I work with in my space to share their experiences and their knowledge for your listeners. So one of the things about uh, fisheries in general that, that I think we should go over for our listeners is that, uh, Robert, these are, these are public resources, right? That the, We, the citizens of this country, all own the fisheries that exist in the waters of the United States. Um, can you talk a little about the history of that? And, and that was not obviously always the case. That, that came about by necessity. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic that uh, I think we'll, uh, we'll spend a lot of time diving in because unlike a lot of people who live on the coast who own their plot of land, it is theirs, uh, their sole claim to it. Uh, our nation's fisheries belong to every American in the country, whether they live on the coast or not. So we have to focus on measuring the impact on that resource, not just on who lives in a certain town, a beach town, uh, but the millions of people who may visit it every year from South Dakota or o Ohio or anywhere else. Um, we did a poor job of that in American history, traditionally. Uh, we didn't really regulate our nation's oceans, uh, and we suffered the consequences of that. We saw almost a complete collapse of a number of major fisheries in the U.S. in the 1950s through the 1990s and even 2000s. Um, we uh, will spend a lot of time talking in the show about a landmark law that was passed in 1976 called the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which yep. recognized the crisis that was occurring in all of our oceans and in the Gulf of Mexico uh, and put in place the first uh, policy regimen to begin to turn that around. And uh, the beautiful thing is that American fisheries are a global success story now, by and large. We have problems here and there, but uh, there's a lot of really hopeful things to talk about that I'm excited to that share. That is good. You know, good news is good news. And, and uh, so much of the American shoreline discussion uh, involves threats and things that are changing in negative ways. Uh, this is a show that's going to maybe tell us some things that are, we're doing well for a change. 
Absolutely. And, and just by way of background, uh, the Magnuson-Stevens Act is what it's called. And um, what, what exactly did that do? Sure. So the, the Magnuson-Stevens Act um, set in place the first list of criteria for catch limits, basically, determining what a sustainable level, the science that would go into measuring fish stocks and determining what a sustainable level would be that we could pull out while also allowing those stocks to replicate themselves uh, at a faster than harvest rate. Uh, it also created the 200 mile EEZ zone, um, right. uh, which you know set up federal fisheries between nine and 200 miles offshore, or some states it was three miles. Uh, the uh, exclusive economic zone. Yeah. Uh, the claimed jurisdiction of federal yeah. fisheries policy. Right? Yeah, push foreign fishermen and trawlers out of our waters uh, mm -hmm. uh, and create a, a, a set of science-based limits and criteria to begin to manage the fishery. Um, interestingly enough, uh, it also tucked the management of the fishery and NOAA, the National Ocean Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency, underneath the U.S. Commerce Department right. because the original vision of, of the fishery was that it was being regulated for commerce reasons. And, of course, there's been a growing dynamic uh, every year of more and more people who use the fishery for recreation and fun. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a we'll talk a lot on the show about the debate and the conflict between those who fish for fun and those who fish uh, to supply the nation with seafood and uh, to export it to the rest of the world. Right. Uh, with any natural resource, there's going to be a little bit of a rub between the people who use it. You uh, bet. Uh, but a, a critical part of managing a resource is figuring out how everyone can share. Well, you, this is obviously just such a tremendous topic. And, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that, that so many people, uh, men and women alike, can recall going fishing when they're young, the excitement of getting that nibble, of reeling in that fish, interfacing with a, a wild creature, uh, and now to be able to learn more about how this, these resources are managed, how it works, this is incredibly important for not only our coastal economies, our coastal communities. I mean, Peter, how many places have yeah. we worked? I mean, just recently in Florida, uh, the, the fishing industry, the recreational fishing industry is tremendous there. Now, you know, we've got diving, like, like free diving, guys spearing fish, you know, using spear guns. Rod fishing, shore fishing, offshore fishing. The marina industry. The, the marina industry. I mean, I mean, it's a gigantic. And Robert, we're going to dive into some of the details uh, and issues that are uh, that are emerging around the country in the fisheries universe. But before we do that, I have got to hear one good fishing story. Like, give us a couple of your favorite. I know you're an avid fisherman. Tell us some stuff about what what's been some of the highlights in your in your career as a fisherman. Well, now you put me on the spot yeah, to tell a, to yeah. put a fish, tell a, a, <laughs> tell fish, a, fish, a, a fish tale. You know, you know, a fisherman's lying when his mouth is moving. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you. More recently, as I've gotten to be an avid scuba diver, I've gotten into spear fishing, hmm. um, and uh, I have done doing a lot more spear fishing offshore from Florida uh, for hogfish and grouper. Mm -hmm. And it is an incredible experience. It combines my two addictions, which are hunting and fishing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, you know, and getting to swim around, chase fish down, shoot, miss, hit, mm -hmm. 
uh, it just uh, is incredibly satisfying. I still love rod and reel fishing, yeah. uh, uh, but I've really gotten into spear fishing, and uh, I encourage everyone to try it at least once. Well, I understand you're a trained diver and maybe possibly a guy who may be in the dive business at some point. <laughs> Well, I'd love to be. That's the, that's, <laughs> that's certainly the early retirement plan. Hey, I got a question about the the spearfishing. So, um, you know, down down in Florida, there's an invasive uh, fish the called fish. the lionfish. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's it's a, an interesting fish to look at. It's defended uh, with sharp, I believe, venomous, right? Yes, uh, absolutely, uh, venomous spines. On its dorsal fin, and I believe on oh, its pectoral fins as well. Yeah. And its pectoral fins as well. And uh, I don't, I don't know of people actually rod and reel, you know, catching them. But I know that it's incredibly popular mm-hmm. for divers to go. And I imagine it's, it's kind of like wild hogs, no limits. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because I will certainly end up doing an episode on invasive species, uh-huh. of which lionfish are the the, the king of that. Uh, and I wish it was just Florida, but we now see lionfish off of the flower garden banks off of the coast of Texas, Wow, uh, Louisiana, all around. They're a huge problem. They're voracious eaters. They'll clean out an entire reef of juvenile fish, um, and uh, they will not bite a hook. Uh, so the way that you have to eliminate them is by traps or by, by usually a Hawaiian sling, which is a type of spear. Mm-hmm. Um uh, a lot of what we'll talk about in my show and, and that I do in my work for, for my employer is developing market-driven solutions to natural resource problems in the fishery. And uh, and I think there's a lot to be learned uh, for dealing with invasive species like lionfish because they're incredibly tasty. And a lot of chefs are starting to seek them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have to figure out how to, way to create a stable supply of them. Mm-hmm. Well, that I, I've I've read about, it, and I don't know if this is true, Robert. That down in Florida, there's a bounty on these fish. You get paid to catch them. Uh, they're trying to control this population. On land, it's a little similar to the python invasion in the in the Everglades, another invasive species. I think, I think the lionfish is from the Pacific for sure, and I think it's from sort of the Indo-Pacific. Mm-hmm. Do we know how it how it got here? Was it a bait fish that was released, or? Well, I think there's. Uh, many theories but probably most credible is like every other invasive species we've dealt with it was brought here purposely Mm -hmm. uh, as a pet or yeah you know to probably for an exotic for aquariums right um, inevitably escape Uh, florida's got a huge problem with all of these species because miami is the port that foreign animals have to come through huh i didn't know that and uh and so that is why you see so many of the Burmese pythons in the Everglades that get dumped, um, that aren't wow. sold at local pet stores. Uh, you have fish coming in there that end up getting dumped in canals. Uh, the wow, uh, the, the snakefish. You got the, the list goes on and on. Interesting. I did not know that about Miami. No, I didn't either. And uh, it's going to be one of the things that. And looking at the podcast host spectrum that we have, we've, we've got a lot of smart people hosting shows. And I say to every one of them, I'm not kidding. I'm looking forward to listening because I'm going to learn something I don't know. I don't work in fisheries every week. I don't work on coastal recreational economics every week, but Dan Martin does. And I don't work in as, as a coastal advocate every week, but Jenna Valente does. 
So I know that we're going to find out a whole bunch about this complicated coastal area on the, on the American shoreline through these podcasts. So Robert, I think, you know, I'll, I'll thank you for, for agreeing to do a show and uh, to bring your talent and expertise to the audience. Before we uh, move on to the, the next subject, which is going to be, we want to learn about you and, and where you came from and, and more about your background, but it is October in Texas. Uh, and uh, I understand that on the on the Padre Island National Seashore, which is a legendary uh, shore fishing destination, they actually call it Rocktober. This is like the big time of year for shore fishing along the Padre Island National Seashore. Mm. Um, would you give our listeners just a little flavor of what it's like to shore fish along the Padre Island National Seashore? Well, it, it is a national treasure. It's incredible. Um, and I'll tell you that the, the incredible popularity of uh, shore-based shark fishing uh, that has popped yeah. up, uh, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, when I was a kid, we'd go out there and, you know, the old Jeep Cherokee or the old yeah. truck and camp in the back and uh, catch redfish and Pompano and jacks off, of, you know, uh, off of the coast with a, with a surf rod. Now you see these guys with giant rigs on the top of their trucks. They've got towers built up on the top of their trucks, and yeah. they're overnight they're catching tiger sharks and bulls. Yeah, um, you know we we could talk about the, the value of that for, for from a conservation point of view <laughs> later. later. Uh, Indeed, uh, but it is an incredible natural resource uh, and is largely unspoiled because so much of that requires four wheel drive, and there's a limited audience that can go down there. And of course, Texas is one of the few places where you can pretty much drive anywhere you want right. on the beach. There's a lot of places where you can't do that. So, um, you know, I've, I've certainly spent my fair share of nights camping uh, a few hours drive, four-wheel drive uh, down the, the beach and uh, seen some incredible things from rattlesnakes in the dunes behind you and coyotes and foxes and the just a few away uh you know, incredible fishing offshore. You can't forget the dune coons that are uh, <laughs> incredibly intelligent and will come in and try to steal your lunch right out of your cooler. Yeah, and <laughs> and enhancing, sorry, and uh, hatching uh, Kemp Ridley turtles and oh yeah, oh yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, you know, all well, sorts there, of stuff. There's a great connection between our federal land policy and our federal fishery policy, particularly on the shoreline, like mm -hmm. the National Seashore System. People don't know there are. I don't know how many national seashores there are, more than 10 of them. And the Padre Island National Seashore in Texas is a couple hundred miles of, of virgin barrier island ecology and really is one of the great drives I've done is from either South Padre north to the Mansfield Cut or from North Padre Island and Corpus down to the cut. I mean, that it is going back in time to see a barrier island that has not been manipulated anywhere, and it's it's an extraordinary place, mm -hmm. and a lot of fishermen on that shore. Oh, and the and the and the method of fishing is uh, really cool. I, I had the pleasure of doing going down there for some shore fishing a few years ago, and uh, we had our rods uh, preset with uh, different. We had about I don't know maybe six or seven rods with different setups. setups going on them and we would cruise the beach and with binoculars i had binoculars and uh, i was not driving i was in the passenger seat and my job was to look out for birds out on the horizon mm -hmm. that had found a bait ball and uh when and of course we were out there in the middle of the week literally we had the beach to ourselves so we're driving along and you know maybe 
three or four miles away, you'll start to see these birds congregating and show up. And then in the surf, you can see these large, I don't know what they were, maybe jack? cutting through the surf i mean these are predatory fish yeah working the working the so it, it was first of all it was hugely educational i learned i did not realize the diversity and the diversity of fish that live there that that pass through there also the what you're saying about the shark fishing is fascinating mm -hmm. uh i encountered uh I, I would we ended up meeting up with a few young guys that were uh, college students at a and m uh, corpus christi and they were they were catching sharks and then taking DNA samples, measuring them, uh, collecting data, and then re-releasing them and and giving that data back to the university. So, I don't know uh, exactly what the conservation <laughs> uh, give and take is there, but it certainly is worth talking about. Well, Robert, before we, uh, I'd like to to learn more about what you do professionally and and the background that you're bringing to the Catch Curve podcast. Uh, can you talk a little bit about? The, uh, the Environmental Defense Fund. Sure. So uh, I work for EDF, Environmental Defense Fund. It's one of the largest um, conservation-based organizations in the world. Um, we have over 2 million members. We operate in about 21 countries now. Um, EDF works in a, a variety of environmental spaces. Um, on climate change and energy issues, health, ecosystems, air quality, water quality. I work in the oceans department um, and we are very laser focused in oceans on fisheries. Mm -hmm. um, we There are a lot of environmental organizations that focus on coral and, and other things that are ecosystem based. We are very focused on fisheries and in particular what makes us a unique organization I think is we're very focused on fishers, mm -hmm. the people who use the resource mm. and trying to find market driven solutions uh, that work for everybody so that people are incentivized to operate in a sustainable way and protect these fisheries for future generations. Mm. Um, in particular, I focus on the Gulf of Mexico. Um, I manage a team of uh, folks with science backgrounds, economists, marine, marine biology, um, government affairs, public policy, and uh, and we work in federal fisheries in the Gulf, um, focused on the species that are of mo that are most popular and that there, there's the most co most conflict around in federal waters between nine and two hundred miles offshore, and that puts me in, at a direct intersection of working with commercial fishermen. Uh, who are catching these fish to go into the supply chain um, for restaurants, grocery stores. It puts me in in the nexus of working with everybody in that supply chain as well. Right, uh, from the fishermen to the processors to the retailers, the restaurants. All the way to the fork. All the way to the fork. That's yeah. right. well said. Um, and, and everywhere in between because that supply chain has to be profitable and work for everybody yeah, in right. order for folks to be incentivized to follow the rules. Uh, uh, from year to year and, and be able to make a living uh, but still you know, manage the resource, their part of the resource in a sustainable way. It also puts us to working directly with recreational fishermen who use the fishery uh, for fun and that really intersects with two groups of people. That's charter captains 
who take the American public fishing on their boats mm-hmm. uh, because they may not own their own boat or they don't want to mess with operating their boat that weekend or whatever it is, or a large party boat that takes 100 people at a time out fishing, uh, which we call a head boat. Um, and then also people who just own their own vessel and go offshore. Um, that's a more select group of people, uh, but still adds up to be a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Uh, and more and more people every year. Um, we'll talk about that in the show. Uh, and then everybody in between that is involved in managing the fishery, uh, the federal agencies that are involved, um, which is primarily National Marine Fishery Service, which right. is a, a division of NOAA. Um, we have a hybrid federal management system in, in, in our nation's oceans where uh, they are federally regulated species, but the governors of each of the coastal states get to appoint a member to a body that oversees making the day-to-day regulatory decisions about seasons and bag limits and right. sustainable harvest levels in the Gulf that's called the Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management Council. Yeah. And we'll talk more about the, all of the councils around the country later. Um, and then... Everybody else who's a stakeholder in the fishery. And that's pretty broad because, again, the American public owns this fishery, whether they live anywhere near the coast or not. They, right. have, they have a stake in it and they have a right to have their voice heard. And, uh, uh, and, and we have an entire regulatory process set, set up to try to make sure that they're heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that will come through in the show and all the episodes is that, like many of the listeners and the, the things that they deal with in coastal management every day, there is a lot of complexity here. Yeah. There's a lot of gray area. Yeah. Um, and I think people will be surprised by how much of this they didn't realize was happening behind the scenes. And I just wanted to chime in on something that was said earlier. Um, what I have found in my years of being involved in federal fisheries management now is that Unlike terrestrial management and everything else we do to manage, say, deer or duck or species that are hunted and harvested every year, where you can see and touch and taste that and you understand those regulations, people don't know what's underneath the water. They don't know how abundant a fish stock is. They can't see it. They've got to trust that the science is right. Yeah. They got to trust that all of the regulatory agencies that are involved, whether it's Texas Parks and Wildlife or the Florida Wildlife Commission or NOAA, uh, they've got to trust the science and the people behind that because they can't see it for themselves. So there's a very different set of trust issues involved in managing uh, this natural resource than there might be another. I've never never thought of that. Yeah. I can see that. Out of sight, out of mind. So uh, I spent a lot of my time talking to people and educating them um, on the kind of science that's used to make these decisions, that it's not perfect, but it's what we have. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that we have to always be striving to the highest uh, common denominator. Well, I I can. Wow. Uh, There's so much to think about there. And I think one of the common themes that you mentioned is is really the bedrock of the whole idea of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And it is the fact that there are these resources that we rely upon and they're tremendously economically important and that there are competing interests and tensions. And it's the limitation of the existence of these physical things. The fishery has a certain capacity to produce fish. It, it, we can pretend that those limits don't exist, but we do that to our detriment and have historically. And all of a sudden, this fishery that we have is supposed to support not only 
the commercial fishing industry, everybody's, I like going down to Central Market and I love getting myself a great redfish filet. And I want to be able to do that every time I want to do that. And there's my expectations, the commercial fishing industry, the whole processing universe, mm-hmm. and then the entire sport fishing industry, which is equipment manufacturers and boat manufacturers and marina operators. And all of this is laid on top of, say, the redfish fishery in the Gulf of Mexico. And it's just one more example of the complexity of the issues that have to be dealt with on the American shoreline. And I just think this is a such a... I, I can't wait to learn about it more. I'm very interested in the management philosophy and how the approaches are done. We have, what, nine fishery management councils around the United States, right? I think there are nine under the Magnuson-Stevens Act. Um, are they different? I mean, there's so many questions I have here, Robert. I don't even know where to start. Yes, they are. I mean, again, it's a state-federal hybrid where you have governors um, nominating members to serve on these regional councils. And then the U.S. Commerce Secretary actually picks from the governor's list. But there's a flavor of that governor's politics and that governor's worldview based on who they've nominated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And these seats are staggered and it's constantly changing over. Um, And so you have councils in the West Coast and the East Coast that operate very differently than the Gulf of Mexico. And a lot of that has to do with the composition of the personalities and the the worldview of the people who are on them. in addition, each of the fisheries directors for the state agencies for that coastal state gets a seat on the council. Mm-hmm. So you have each of the individual philosophies of that state's resource director. Who's, uh, our, who's our Texas guy? Robin Rikers. Robin Rikers. Appointed uh, by Carter Smith. Okay. Or, you know, appointed by the governor, ultimately, but yeah. uh, as an employee of Carter Smith at Tar- Texas Parks and Wildlife. A uh, longtime member of the Gulf Council. Very knowledgeable about the process. Uh, well, I had to ask one other thing. I think the uh, couple of things jump out at me. I've, I've known about and uh, the Environmental Defense Fund for a long time. It's unique in its approach to resource management issues because of its market-based philosophy. It's a very, I think rich area of thinking and resource management. It is not the regulatory approach. It's the economic incentive approach. And I think that's fascinating and draws in a more complex discussion. And then I understand you sit on a federal advisory commission of some kind. Is that something you can mention? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I was uh, appointed by the U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross recently uh, to serve on the Marine Fishery Advisory Committee. Uh, which is the the body that advises him on all management of all of our living resources in the oceans. Wow. Uh, I'm honored to sit on it. Uh, it's There's a lot of fascinating, smart people across all sectors, um, commercial processors, commercial fishermen, tribal leaders, uh, recreational interest, scientists, economists. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is our job on, it's the acronym stands for, it's pronounced MAFAC, Mayfac. on the Mayfac board um, to uh, look at the 30,000 foot view of what's going on in our nation's fisheries and trends and then wow. produce recommendations to the U.S. Commerce, Commerce Secretary on, on ways to act on those. What a perspective to bring to the table. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's interesting because uh, earlier in the, in the show we were talking about how uh, the America's fisheries have seen darker days. And obviously... Uh, we're never out of the woods because our population's increasing. Demand mm-hmm. is always going up. 
for seafood and for recreational opportunities. Um, what are what is your outlook here? I mean, where what? Let me ask this question: What is the area? If if you could snap your fingers and make one change right now, uh, what would you do to improve our our nation's fisheries this instant? I'll come back to that in just a second. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I want to speak to sort of the trend that you mentioned yeah, because it's important. Um, we did. We have certainly seen darker days. Uh, we crashed a number of stocks in, in the country, and the Magnus Stevens Act has been a critical, played a critical role in turning those around. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of lessons that we need to make sure we learn and carry through and not forget. Um, and we seem to be in an age right now that uh, where it is popular to be anti-science and, and right. bash science, and that is concerning to me. Um, but the trend that I'm most concerned about is one that I'm sure every single one of your listeners is a professional who deals with coastal issues understands. We have a mass migration occurring right now in our nation uh, to coastal areas. Um, and with more people becomes more pressure on the resource all of these resources yeah Mm -hmm. um it means more people eating seafood it means more people on the water um Mm -hmm. fishing recreationally combined with that we have this massive shift in technology in the last 25 years um right bigger better faster boats more fuel economy so you can go further offshore gps units that you can now buy at cabela's with sd cards that have every single piece of artificial reef or natural reef bottom marked on the card so you can put yourself right on top of that spot, right on top of where fish aggregate. Um, and basically, we've become more effective hunters and, and we've become more lethal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love to fish. I love to catch fish. I love to take them home. I love to eat them. Yeah. Um, but there are consequences that come with that pressure. But generally, my, my message for the show and my message for uh, the work that I do every day is a very hopeful one. Because what we have seen is that Fisheries can be very resilient, unlike some terrestrial species where we've done harm that could take generations, if not hundreds of years, to you know reverse course. We've seen if we can take pressure off of a species in the ocean and give it the opportunity to rebound, that it will mm-hmm. most of the time, yeah. we, it's depending on the life cycle of that species. Fisheries can be very resilient if we manage them in the right way. Yeah. Uh, and so my message is generally one of hope uh, that if we do this right, everybody can get fair and flexible access to the resource, uh, but keep it healthy for the next generation. And that's good for everybody because that means you got people coming to the coast every year who want to book those charter trips and go fishing. People who want to buy that new Yamaha motor, um, put it on their new center console boat because they want to go catch red snapper. Uh, you know, folks who... Uh, want to go see their favorite chef at their favorite restaurant in their favorite coastal town. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they know he's going to have fresh seafood or she's going to have fresh seafood on that menu uh, mm-hmm. because he has made a commitment to sourcing it in a sustainable way. So all of those pieces can come together as complex as they are, but yeah. it requires a lot of dialogue and everybody getting on the same page. And, and like I said, the thing that concerns me, if I could snap my fingers uh, uh, and go in a different direction, is that we've got in the habit of of letting ideology get ahead of facts in a lot of places mm-hmm. uh, and decided that it's popular to be anti-science yep. uh, if it doesn't fit with our worldview, and that's a dangerous trajectory. I, I think that this is a theme as well that uh, our whole, our broader audience, I think everybody 
has related with this. Anytime a regulation changes that the stakeholders are affected in some way, shape, or form, uh, it is just as important as it is to find the right balance of regulation and the right solution to the problem, it is just as important to communicate the whys and wherefores. I, I believe genuinely that the stakeholders of in the fishing community, the commercial, you know, like you said, the fish to the fork, I think that everybody wants to see the right regulations in place. It certainly in the long run benefits uh, this generation of Americans and generations going forward. However, it can be very difficult to understand the complexities. And that's really what this show, what, what I think we, Peter, you and I envisioned for this show was to have a forum where, uh, Robert, you have the, the ability to run straight into those fault lines, right into those areas where these uh, competing interests are rubbing up against each other and, and might be in conflict. And we can go and have that conversation and, and, and air it out. Like, let's, let's air this thing out. Be better educated. And, be, educate and, ourselves. And reach a broader audience. And it is true, Robert. I think the, what you said about the fact that they're not visible, these fisheries cannot be seen, felt, and touched. There's a faith issue here and a trust issue here, which I think is really the first time I'd thought of it that way. And it does seem that that is a special characteristic of fisheries management. It puts a premium on science. And uh, my basic take on, on that issue of, of, of science is, is when you're dealing with physical systems, whether they're geochemical systems or atmospheric systems, these are physical things that are beyond our control. Fisheries are a physical system. And I've always say to folks I talk to, reality is a relentless teacher. And you may think that you're managing the fishery sustainably, but if you are not, you will be taught that lesson and hopefully not too late. Um, mm -hmm. And there is, I would really like to know more about you know, the, the history, sort of the dark phase of resource fisheries management and some of the experiences around the American shoreline. I can think of Cannery Row in San Francisco Bay Area, the huge sardine fisheries that used to exist on the Pacific coast and the cod fishery up in Massachusetts. I mean, what, what, what happened and what, which ones jump out at you as an experience of say mismanagement back yeah. in the past before we were smarter and better? Or, or that actually forced us to get better. Forced mm -hmm. us to get better. Well, it's a controversial one, but the one that is closest home for me is the red snapper fishery in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a personal one for me because I remember growing up fishing with my grandfather and my dad where we hardly ever could catch a red snapper. And if you did, it was a juvenile snapper that you usually had to throw back. Um, and that, that was my context and experience for the fishery. I didn't know it could be better than that. And you hear stories, but fishermen tell stories, right? But then yeah. you actually go back and look at the historical photographs um, we started tracking data in the red snapper fishery in the 1880s. Hmm. Uh, and there's incredible photography of the size of these fish that they're harvesting and bringing on shore. And, and, and you can see in, in visual history and in oral history, and then of course in the, when we began to track it with hard data, just an incredible precipitous decline. Uh -huh. Uh, of 50 plus years of hard overfishing where mm -hmm. every year we were taking way more out of the water which we call a total allowable catch uh, we were harvesting way above the total allowable catch uh, so we were depleting the resource every year yeah. even, uh, even until, without gps back then they yeah. could do it yeah well and, and, and you know and, and a lot of that 
that has, has changed. The tables have changed, right? But a lot of that was everybody was a bad actor in that. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't say that in a way to demonize people because no. we didn't know, we right. didn't know better. Right. Uh, I mean, and, the, the industrial forces kind of came to bear at that moment. I'm, you know, technologically, I'm sure they were using nets and all sorts of technology that you know would be inevitably regulated away uh, out of necessity again. Well, and, there, and there's another concept that comes into play here and it, that we refer to as shifting baselines, right? Mm. Is that you you want to harvest at levels that are of historical significance to you that you've experienced huh. without mm. recognizing where the, the species is at today. And you keep fishing harder and harder in order to catch what you used to catch. Right. Yeah. And, and some of this used to be that we, we've seen where we started operating as we began to start to regulate the fishery uh we began to start to use antiquated to what i think are antiquated tools like seasons um and that triggered a race to fish where people now had a smaller window of time and began to fish harder uh and and trigger a derby um and we'll dive into this more later but the it's one of the most telling stories and a hopeful story about what a turnaround can look like um, where we had almost reached a complete collapse of the species by 2000. I don't think would, I was aware of that. Would that mean no. extinction? We weren't close to... Uh, Commercially extinct. Co- yeah, okay. we weren't close to extinction per se, but uh-huh. uh, but um, a fishery that had so little abundance that it, w- it wasn't worth even bothering with. Um, and of course, if you keep pushing it far enough... Right, you'll tip um, it over the... And we have yeah. done that. Yeah, we, we've, we've, there are examples of collapse in fisheries around the world, and yeah. not, hopefully not as many nowadays as there used to be. Yeah, and and so we had to do, and, and at this point, the Magnuson Act was working in some places, but was kind of still failing this fishery. Um, and it wasn't until a reauthorization of the Magnuson Act later that hmm. really put hard science-based limits in place Mm -hmm. Um, then we began to see a turnaround okay so do you think the regular let's say the legal structure that we're operating in now with uh magnus and stevens and other fisheries management policies at the at the federal level do we do we have the structure in place to get the job done right now uh is our legal framework adequate well we are getting the job done in in many many places like we we have rebuilt over 40 stocks um in the country. Uh, and, and like I said, U.S. fisheries really are a global success story by hmm. most measures. There are dark spots. You mentioned cod earlier. Yeah. Um, there are places where we still have a lot of work to do. Um, but a lot, we have a lot of technology catching up to the needs. Um, for example, electronic monitoring, electronic reporting, cameras on boats um, that increase accountability would be one example. Um, but we have we have other challenges that a lot of your coastal audience will will appreciate as well, and that comes with uh, layering on the complexities of climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and where we have a problem at the regulatory level is our regulatory regime not catching up right with shifting stocks of fish that are moving because of temperature change in the water, the migration of the stock, which is 
right. documented in birds and and plant life and all kinds of things now right. it's clear that there are dislocations of historic populations geographically happening around the world i didn't realize that was true for fish it is and it is it is especially true in colder water areas um probably the east coast is one of the most extreme examples hmm. so where so we have species of fish being caught way up the eastern seaboard uh, that they did not used to catch and the, the regulatory structure hasn't caught up so they don't have bag limits and uh wow. you know total allowable catch numbers for those species because they didn't need it before wow. and as they're migrating north and into new communities where we don't have the structure to regulate it they're leaving you know, traditional coastal communities that depended on those species. Wow. And it's impacting the economy and the culture of those areas. Wow. Uh, so that's amazing. There, there are complexities that we have to deal with. And this is, where, again, where I makes me very nervous in this anti-science climate that we have found ourselves in, uh, that yeah. we are that we are having a conversation that is rooted 50 years in the past instead of looking 50 years forward. Right. And I, you know, and I, the one I have read about, and this is a different fishery, but the lobster fishery off of Maine, because of the water temperature changes, and I think it's the Gulf Stream, is further north and closer to the coast, is changing that fishery, mm-hmm. that resident fishery, and that culture and that community, that fishery community that has defined that region of the American shoreline for but, you know, since the beginning, a couple hundred years. Sure. You know, the lobstermen of Maine. Everybody knows the lobstermen of Maine. Yeah, I mean, and the lobster fishery in Maine highlights another area, too, where you have, uh, we have to figure out a way to make sure that these fisheries are not in conflict with with other areas. And that has been right whales right. Uh, in, in that fishery that are getting entangled into lobster gear. And we've had high mortality rates of right whales, which are endangered. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so NOAA, for example, just uh, issued a challenge grants money uh, t- that would be awarded for technological innovations to try to solve this problem. Right. But it's another thing th- of, that speaks to the complexity of how all this works. And one gear that a fisherman is using can impact uh, a neighboring fishery. Uh, we've got lots of discarded uh, traps in the Gulf that it, that get caught in shrimp nets, destroy gear. Yeah. You know, you've got the, the interaction of shrimp trawl and long liners on coral. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of complexity here that has to be managed uh, in the process that I hope we'll get to dive in. I'm, in the I'm glad show. there's professionals who do that day in and day out because it is not, uh, this is not something you can cram for a test on. This is a, a lifetime of work to, to sort out how to improve and manage these and, I used to know uh, when I was in college, I had a bunch of friends who were fish and wildlife management majors. And when I would sit down and talk to them about what they were studying, I was in marine biology. They always talked about, well, we're just trying to set up this catch limit and this. And and, and when, at the end of these conversations, after some period of time, I said, you know, y'all aren't in the fish and wildlife management business. You're in the people management business. Mm-hmm. If you get out of the way of the fishery, the fish, believe me, will will, will do what they're supposed to do. The whole structure is about how do we interact and use its human management is what fisheries management fundamentally is. Yeah. There's a few exceptions to that in terms of resource uh, improvements or things like that. But primarily we're talking about how to manage communities of interest as they interface with this resource. That's completely true. And, and it you, that it can be easily seen in a lot of the technical terms that we 
used when we're speaking about the health of the fishery. For example, the SPR or the spawning potential ratio. Yeah. And it's a measure of the spawning potential of a stock that is fished and has human interaction or a stock that has no human interaction. It's kind of a measure is of pressure. Not fished. And what's the variable there? It's yeah. humans, right? right. Yeah. It's like, in, and that's totally true. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what I do is working with stakeholders who use the fishery. Because at the end of the day, if we don't figure out rules and regulations that they can live with yeah. um, and that they're incentivized to follow, right? then uh, because it is out of sight, out of mind, out offshore, Love. it becomes the Wild West. Um, and we've seen, like in the commercial red snapper fishery in, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, where we had a system that incentivized faster, harder fishing all the time. It was disastrous. Yeah. So we're perfectly capable of catching them all these days. It seems like the gear and the technology has gotten good enough that if we wanted to, uh, the capacity to affect these things and cause a collapse exists. This, we have the atom bomb essentially in our hands. And the question is, do we drop it or not? Well, I don't, like, a little to, I don't like to think <laughs> that's in, a little over the top. Yeah, I don't think, like to think in, in terms that bleak. Yeah, that's Peter little, bringing it well, way I, down. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying we will, but I'm, I'm yeah. saying that the capacity to destroy it is, exists. We we do yeah, have that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. the, the amount of pressure, the, yeah. the migration to the coast, if we're not careful, we can blow it. Yeah. yeah. But, know, we, but we also have the right as a nation to access that resource and, and enjoy it. For sure. Uh, and that's the challenge. So one of our great national treasures is our wildlife. And, and, uh, uh, Robert and I actually have been hunting before, but, uh, you know, wild game in North America was decimated until the government stepped in and regulated it. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the fisheries that were heavily used were decimated until adequate regulations came into place. And they were very forward thinking. In fact, the language of perhaps our greatest conservationist, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, was always about future generations i mean think literally thinking about uh, a legacy to leave as as part of our national treasure is th- these fisheries and our wildlife so it is part i believe of our of our identity um certainly as part of the coastal identity of the american shoreline uh it being a productive place where we can recreate and get food and get nutrients and and as John Muir would say, uh, not only uh, nourish our bodies with the food, but also nourish our souls with the experience. So uh, there's no doubt that that this is just absolutely a critical facet of uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And um, yeah, it's going to be good. And and I think, Tanner, you touched on something, this the soul idea and, and really this the issue of how this particular fisheries topic affects coast coastal culture and the people involved and how communities have been formed and 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 identify uh, on the mm. basis of this particular resource experience. I mean, can you talk about some of that, the cultural aspects of fishery communities or fishing communities on the American shoreline? Sure. Well, I mean, a very personal one for me where I grew up on the coast. Um, Aransas Pass historically was one of the largest shrimping fleets uh, in the world. Wow. Um, and with that, you know, huge shrimp fleet um, came uh, incredible fish markets and shrimp markets. And people would drive for miles to come buy fresh shrimp uh, for special occasions and family dinners. And 
you know, the best seafood restaurants were all along the coast there. And um, it was a critical part of our identity, our coastal identity. Um, and that was the guys who were offshore for weeks at a time catching those shrimp. Hmm. And then the money that they put into the coastal economy, taking, right. care, ta- taking care of their families. Uh, and the restaurateurs and the, the busboys and the servers and everybody who worked in the supply chain. Um, so I've seen that up close. Uh, and, and, you know, why do people go to the coast in, in America? It's to go to experience the water being on the water and to eat seafood mm-hmm. or be on a boat catching their own fish. I mean, yeah. it is the critical component of what drives a coastal community. Hmm. Um, so, and we, you mentioned Maine. Uh, I mean, the lobster fishery in Maine, Maine could not be more defined (laughs) than by that tasty red critter. You got to get a lobster roll. You can't. First thing you do when you get to Maine is where's the good lobster roll? You cannot go to Maryland without having a crab cake. A blue crab. A blue crab. It's and and, you know, and and I'm going to say something controversial, but uh, because of some of the management of the blue crab fishery in yeah. Maryland, a lot of the crab that you're eating in Maryland came from Louisiana or Texas. Right. <laughs> they they do not like to hear that. They don't. But, and mm-hmm. and uh, we, were ta- <laughs> we were talking to a guy from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation yesterday who's a biologist from Maryland, on, uh, and he was talking about the labeling issue of yeah. crab in the Chesapeake. Uh, and then you get to Alaska, and everybody knows what Alaska is about. Alaska is about salmon. Yeah. I mean, that whole state's identity and the... Mm-hmm. the the incredible West Coast salmon fishery, which, thank God, there's healthy stocks up and down the West Coast. But the days of the Columbia River fish stock uh, salmon fisheries, it's just one of the, well, it's one of the sad tales for me, having gone to school up there and studied some of that issue. Uh, the hydroelectric power system that was put on the Columbia River changed the entire ecology of that region and the economy of that region, really, mm-hmm. uh, with the salmon fishery changes. Um, you know, I, I these fisheries are iconic around mm-hmm. the American shoreline, and uh, both culturally and economically, it's just an amazing well, and topic. I, I, can, and, I can speak for a Southern California boy. Uh, the, the coastline of Southern California was uh, heavily... Uh, forested with kelp uh, and uh, poor practices, fishing practices, both by recreational fishermen and commercial activity, decimate, as well as runoff and, and pollutants in the water, decimated the kelp. But because of creating sanctuaries and regulations that changed those, uh, those outcomes, the kelp has, like, in my lifetime, I have watched that kelp come back. When I was a kid... There was none. Now there are big, big, big kelp patties back out there. And it's just really cool to see the, the yeah, positive the, impacts coming uh, back. Uh, bottom fishing, rockfish, abalone, right? All of that is kelp fishing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and you hit, on a, you hit on a topic that we'll certainly cover in the podcast. And that is also the tension that exists between terrestrial agriculture uh, and fisheries, and we are seeing no better example of that that conflict than in the red tide crisis right now in Florida. Absolutely, and let's talk about that, Robert. And I do think because it's a pitch perfect example of the relationship, as you're saying, between upland management, decision making, and and shoreline based economies and ecological health. And 
we don't somehow, we somehow miss these connections. We still miss them. I mean, what's the red tide story in Florida? What's been your experience being over in Florida? Well, I, I think it's like any of the topics we're talking about, it's complex. So I, I think sometimes people pigeonhole and demonize and, on one variable, mm -hmm. uh, which right. may be unfair. But there are a lot of factors at play. I think um, generally we've uh, seen a regulatory regime that's gotten very relaxed about water quality um, and about freshwater releases um, to meet the needs of one sector of the economy in particular. Uh, but then we also have contributing factors like climate change. Yeah. Um, and we have a, a red tide algal bloom right now um, in the Gulf side. Of, I mean, we have algal blooms in a couple of places in Florida, but in particular, the red tide bloom on the Gulf side, it's catastrophic. Um, I mean, yeah. I would have never imagined that I would ever see a red tide in my life that would kill a whale shark. Right. And we've seen a whale shark wash ashore. Yeah. Manatees, turtles, millions of fish. Dolphins. Dolphins. Why is that? For It's shocking, but go into that. Why, why is the whale shark story so iconic and and stand out to you well the the in short i mean i think the the algal bloom has become so pervasive and so far offshore and so uh the turbidity of it, it, it the density it, that, yeah and the density it, mm -hmm. in the water column up and down mm -hmm. you're seeing species that normally would be able to get completely out of this thing's way and move right. offshore or find areas that were not hypoxic uh getting trapped and it just gives you a sense of the, yeah. the, the volume that we're dealing with. I mean, the whale we're shark about... is a 40, 30, 40 foot long fish, the largest, actually largest fish in the ocean. Yeah. It is a plankton feeder. Uh, it's sucking up these toxic algae. And mm -hmm. yeah, they can't get out. It, this, it's so vast an area that by the, they, they swim through it. And is that, I mean, it's, and I, mean I saw that. That struck me not, as well. I saw not to mention, that. Happen? Not to mention, you know, the impact inshore. And, and I mean, the mass quantities of dead fish on the beaches um, in canals where people live, the incredible smell of, of yeah. death, uh, which is not exactly inviting for tourists. Right. But then there are the human impacts from red tide. I mean, there are people who are sick. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had a number of, of fishermen that I work with uh, who have reported ailments as a result of red tide um, from itchy eyes to yeah. uh, inflamed lungs and uh, cough uh, yeah. we were working in charlotte county florida until june and the last trip we were there we're typically down on the beach the red tide hadn't reached its peak there weren't a lot of dead fish but the aerosols in the air you can detect and i did get sick and i'm pretty that that doesn't happen to me much but i got a pretty rough cough and i think it was because of the red tide aerosols that were present and it the so fish were so I, I just spent a week in on St. Pete Beach outside of St. Mm -hmm. Petersburg. And uh, we were at an iconic hotel on the beach. And that's probably one of the most beautiful beaches in the country. Uh, they were at 25% occupancy, wow. which should be one of their peak times for the year. It mm. is crushing the local economy there. Right. Um, and as an example of how... If not properly managed, the the yeah. conflict between these two large natural resources can have catastrophic consequences for the people who use the resource and the resource itself. And 
and the impact, the conservation impacts will drag on for years. We, the science will catch up with this in a matter of years. Huh. And you'll see the Gulf Council have to talk about lowering um, annual catch limits for gag grouper and red grouper. And, wow. uh, you know, the list will go on because we'll learn in stock assessments in the next couple of years wow. how bad the mortality was wow. on these species. Um, so, so it's going to resonate for, it'll. It, it, in other words, that population hit that has occurred has not been fully assessed won't be built into the catch limit programs for a couple more years i mean this boy i didn't yeah yeah, yeah you i think mean, about it, this is a this is a decade long event this isn't a bad summer in other words um it's going to directly in, impact the economy of other sectors of the shoreline yeah the like i said the you know fishery science uh takes a while to catch up to what, what's happening on the water because um, for resource reasons, uh, for manpower reasons, you're not conducting stock assessments all the time. Right? Mm-hmm. They, they are scheduled out for each right. species. So it will catch up and we'll see how bad this impact was. Um, and uh, it will have consequences in terms of catch limits. And then that will have consequences on the people who use the resource. Uh, you'll have charter captains who'll say, I can't offer trips. You know, I can't sell a trip where I get to keep right. X number of fish. It's just not enough for my customers. Um, right. or, or that fish disappears from menus yeah. uh, and stops making its way into the supply chain because the catch limits have gotten so low. Wow. Right. Man, it, it's, it, it reminds me of why, um, you know, when we were putting it together, we are trying to figure out what is the, what, is, what are we trying to do with the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today and it's insights and intelligence for a thriving shoreline. And we, when we use the word thriving, we're talking about its economic, which is an, which, uh, its economic uh, health, but it's also a biological term. Thriving is a, is a term that's meant to capture the fact that the coastal economy depends on environmental health and ecosystem health. We've built our interface, our, our, our relationship with the coast based on this ecological assumption that this stuff works. Mm-hmm. And we keep, we've got to be careful not to, not to kill it. Well, the same way a hurricane is Mother Nature kind of giving you a stark reminder. Mm-hmm. Uh, the red tide is a good example of how um, when things go biologically awry, yeah. the immediate impact on a coastal community can be catastrophic. It can. I, and I, I use the word catastrophe as well because the... The rental economy, the tourism industry uh, right. has been crushed this year on that part of the Florida Gulf Coast shoreline. Uh, you know, it's one of the one of the things about the Internet is people can go on Airbnb and find a place on the Atlantic side or go to Georgia. And so the market is fluid enough to respond to these problems and mm-hmm. it changes the economy. Well, the other, you know, that's exactly right. And uh, the the trickle down of this, let's just call it event, c- catastrophe, calamity, management failure, however you want to look at it, will have impacts that will extend into places that in our wildest imagination we could not foresee. You know, uh, those fishing licenses. And uh, when, when people go out on those fishing trips, they, they have to have a license. Those license fees go and pay for the reason. So if that goes down, the tourism, when the tourists stop coming, the tourism dollars right. go down. When the tourism dollars go down, funding streams are, are, are depleted. 
and those then go in some cases would then go back into the community and then those it becomes strained so uh this will have impacts in the secondary and tertiary that we will have to follow and and you know that's that's something that uh sadly we're going to have to be paying attention to on the american shoreline podcast network well i'll bring in uh we'll do a whole episode on this and I'll bring in folks from both sides or all sides of this dimension to have a conversation about this. Uh, and, and I don't think this is going away anytime soon. No. I was just in Florida and the, the TV ads are flying back and forth already in, in both the governor's race and the U.S. Senate race there that are highly competitive uh, and has become a statewide issue that will impact, may impact the balance of the United States Senate. Wow. Wow. Woo woo. Who would have thought? That's incredible. Uh, and and uh, I had seen I've recently read that the red tide has come around uh, Key, Key Largo and is on the Atlantic side of Florida now, which is a very rare event that it's come across the Gulf into into the Atlantic side of Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to go back and talk a little bit about you had mentioned uh, climate change and every podcast host we have introduced and we do not set this up in advance has talked about this issue and how it's impacting the professional work that they're doing dan martin whose interview will be up uh, very soon who's a, a recreational economist talked about the transformation the economic development transformation of the shoreline in response to changing tide levels and sea level rise and he thinks there's massive uh, dislocation potentially here, a redevelopment of the coast, a rethinking. When we talked to Jenna Valente about her work on advocacy, you, it's front and center. So regardless of the, you know, the public's understanding of that issue, the people who get paid day in and day out to work on the issues that they work on, fisheries, economic development, those things are beginning to factor this into their equation because it's visible and it's and, 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 and it's being experienced. It's not theoretical. It's actual. And I think I'm a little surprised that no matter what topic we brought up, it, there's been a climate change component of this of this professional universe. And well, it's it's literally where the rubber hits the road, right? I mean, yeah. it's like, yeah, you know, if climate change, sea level rise from climate change and then temperature change in waters, uh, literally, this is where it's happening. Right. Uh, this is the most sensitive areas where we're, we're going to see the impacts of that. Um, and to your point about people who do this for a living, this being on their radar, uh, we have multi-billion dollar insurance companies that have an entire department set up yeah. to do threat assessments about yeah. climate change because yeah. they understand what's happening. And the U.S. military. And, yeah. I, and that's how I always, I, let me just see if the people who write the checks are getting their head around this issue. And I know the insurance industry is building this into their actuarial tables you know that it's a serious deal. These people are not are not operating on ideology or perspectives of, gee, this is just what I believe. They're looking at their actual exposure and their billion dollar liabilities. That's the test of truth that I look at when I look at climate changes, is yeah. that kind of thing. Well, and, and I have a lot of conversations where with, with fishermen stakeholders that I work with that are skeptical about mm-hmm. the science and, you know, their they're looking at this through an ideological lens but at the same in the same breath they'll tell you about the differences that they see on the water yeah in as a 30 plus year charter captain or commercial fisherman yeah that they can't explain um and they're struggling with it and i think that's a conversation it's an important conversation to have and a lot of americans uh are are having um 
But people who look at this resource every day, look at these coastal communities and see these weird shifts occurring in fish stocks and bird behavior, um, catch rates, um, the size of storms coming in, yeah, water temperature changes. Right. Um, there, there is an there is a conversation happening in coastal communities across America. Sometimes it's not in the climate change frame, right? But it's still totally about the subject of climate change. They're just using different words, and that's okay. I think it's a difficult. I, you know, I I tend to think that when we confront something that is as dominant a idea or as pervasive in its impacts. We, have, we struggle a little bit with accepting the reality that we are capable of modifying the environment to this extent in ways that are, have impacts that can be so severe. We, we, there's a disbelief to that. There is a, there is a denial to that. And, it, and part of politics and policymaking and decision-making and management is about people getting comfortable with the framework. And I think we're early in the process of people getting comfortable with the framework that what is happening is something we really have to try to contend with. And there's no obvious solution. That's the other thing that I think holds people back. It's like, what could we possibly do? Um, there are things we can, but it's so it can be overwhelming to, to acknowledge it. it. It can be, but at the same time, it's everywhere, right? Yeah. I mean, look, we're having conversations about new shipping lines in the Arctic. That's right. And the possibility of a geopolitical conflict with some of our largest adversaries. Yeah. Because we are actually, in this day and age, staking out new territory. We are. That used to be covered in ice. That's right. There's new uh, Russia, but the, the Norway, the Swedes, I think the Americans, the Canadians, Chinese. the Chinese, everybody's laying claim to this all of a sudden possibly open water for shipping and oil and gas development and the fisheries involved, right? I think it includes the fisheries discussion. You know, it's... Well, I'll tell you what, it promises to be a uh, fascinating and uh, can't-miss content on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, Robert, thank you uh, for joining us on the show today. Listen, uh, all of our all of our listeners out there, please share this with your friends. Subscribe to our uh, our mailing list. Our website will be up soon, Peter. Yes. We can't wait. God willing. God uh, willing. It's or, coming or along. web designer willing. We'll be <laughs> we'll be up with a website in a couple of weeks at coastalnewstoday.com. We have a splash page there now. You can sign up for the podcast there. Check us out on Facebook, Coastal News Today. And the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Subscribe to the network. You get all of the shows on the network in one subscription. Anywhere, as I like to say, Google Pods, Apple Pods, or anywhere you get your podcast. Absolutely. And uh, Robert Jones, thank you very much. And I, I'm looking forward to the Catch Curve podcast. And what about closing thoughts for you, Robert? Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you guys for inviting me. I'm excited to... Uh, to participate and to put together some episodes that your listeners uh, hopefully find enjoying. And thanks to the sponsors for uh, making it possible to do in the first place. We got into some wonky subjects, but we I want to, I want to guarantee everybody that it won't be all so <laughs> we won't be that thick all the time. No, we'll dense. also talk about, uh, you know, some fun fishing stories, fishing tactics, great places to go, uh, enjoy the coast and take advantage of this fishery. Cause at the end of the day, uh, we've done, by and large, a good job of managing these fisheries and bringing them back, and uh, and I'm loving enjoying enjoying them. I hope everyone else will as well. 
Thank you so much, Robert. Catch it on ASPN, the Catch Curve podcast with Robert Jones. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it very much.